welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Farida Abu Bakari as my guest via Zoom on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Farida is a registered architect in Ontario, Canada. She is the director of global practice at the award-winning architecture, urban design, and planning firm WXY. For over 10 years, Farida has lived and worked throughout North America and Africa to build an extensive portfolio, including aviation, cultural, healthcare, higher ed, justice, residential, science, and technology projects. Farida is the Emeritus Community Affairs Director of Atlanta's NOMA chapter, the National Organization of Minority Architects, whose mission it is to champion diversity within the design profession. Her work with NOMA led her to co-found BAIDA. Is that how you would say that? Say beta. Beta? Okay. <laughs> beta programming, yeah. Black Architects and Interior Design Association. This Canadian nonprofit promotes diversity, equity, and inclusion in the profession of architecture and interior design. Farida is also passionate about contributing to the future of the profession in Canada and serves as a council member of the Ontario Association of Architects. Farida, I'm super excited to have you here as my guest and looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, I love my I love this question. So feel okay. free to answer it as honestly or, uh, you know, however you want. If you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about your fellow architects, either Canadian or otherwise? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think architecture in itself has developed in a way, like, unlike other, uh, it really relies on the client. And I think sometimes as architects, we forget that and we become, we have our own design and we just negate the, the client interface <laughs> and we're not really cognizant of what the built environment looks like together um, with landscape and city planning and all these things that come into it. So there's certain architects that I think this, like the architect that per se might not be what we want for the future. So those are the only things that annoy me really about it's the aesthetic qualities rather than thinking about what the human qualities are. Okay. I like do. that. And you've worked for some serious black cape architects. So we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. I'm, I'm excited to, to talk about that. Yeah. Um, so when did you discover or, or realize that you wanted to be an architect? Um, really early on, to be honest, I was really lucky to be uh, type A from a really young age. <laughs> like seven or eight. Um, my uncle was an architect. Uh, and so I did have someone in my family that I had examples of that, what that looked like. Um, and then I did meet a few other male architects throughout my, my, uh, my elementary school and middle school that were working. So I did get, my parents made the, you know, the, the concert effort to make sure that I met them and understood what my career path would look like and what school I needed to do in terms of university and, and master's. So I did know I had a plan very okay. early on. And yeah. none of those family members discouraged you along the way? 
Um, my mom only discouraged me because she was an artist. And so she for sure knew that she didn't want me to be an artist. So okay. it meant that I would make money. <laughs> she was like, I don't want you to be a starving artist and then also not be good in math and sciences because that was incredibly important to them. So that's what they funneled into me with Kumon lessons and things very early on. And okay. then just making, learned all the, the coursework that I need for high school to get in. Okay. And so that kind of shifted their thinking. So they, they knew that it was... They did. I don't think they fully understand what they were getting themselves into in terms of like the, the the like how long it takes to get licensed and exams and all that, and then not the pay structure and all. That. <laughs> they didn't know all that. They just knew that it was comparable to an engineer. So to them, it, as a Nigerian parents, African parents, they were happy with that. <laughs> okay. Don't you think it's funny how um, I, I think we as architects will try to discourage other people along the way? You know, like that that seems to be a thing that we do. Like, oh no, you, you don't want to be an architect you know, it's, 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 uh, yeah. but then again we all love the profession so I'm not sure why we do that I know I mean I've I've definitely gone through phases of my career where I was like don't do this like don't ever <laughs> when young people come to me but I think I'm in a good space now where I've been doing it so long that I, I kind of feel like those setbacks and obstacles are a necessary process and it makes you love it even more when you kind of get through that so maybe yeah it just you have to really love it is really what I tell people. I'm like, if you're just dabbling in it, like I hate when people are like, I love sketching. So I thought I was going to be an architect. And I'm like, then you never. Yeah. Be yeah. You're either all in or you're not. And and like my, my, one of my daughters, you know, says she wants to be an architect. I mean, she's young, she's still like 13. So she, you know, but she does talk about it and she seems interested in it. But for me, I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. You can, you can like kind of, I can, you could skip all the mistakes I made along the way. We can do all this right, like right from the beginning for you. That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it could be great. And I think that the profession is changing enough that it could be something, you know, it's a lot, I think, uh, becoming a healthier environment than what it was like 20 years ago. Okay. So what do you, yeah. what do you mean by that? I think that like many technical fields, um, architectures are well by nature of socioeconomic backgrounds and then uh, it was more male focused, first of all, and then obviously more white male focused because just the generational thinking of, of the 80s and 70s and like it just wasn't a market for black women like myself. Um, and I don't really know how I would have gotten exposed to it if not for my family member being in it. I, sure. I mean, it was obviously uh, uh, something that I had clarity about, but I, I don't know why that I was so clear about what that looked like. But for me, it was something that was just simply that that's what I was going to do. Um, but I don't necessarily know if I had come from a, a different socioeconomic background. Like my father was a doctor and my mom was an accountant. We're Nigerian, we're African. We all kind of are well-versed and well-educated. Mm -hmm. And so that was a simple thing, but I don't know if necessarily someone like me that came from a different socioeconomic background and that wasn't as well-traveled, they probably wouldn't have known the steps or had the financial means to kind of explore what that meant. Um, so I think just generational wealth has kind of formated architecture to be what it is. And also like the Hollywood template of the white male with the black framed glasses and the turtleneck is, is something that sticks in everyone's mind of what an architect is meant to look like. So I think that years ago, that's kind of what a lot of different things like in finance and, you know, lawyers, and, and that's kind of obviously over the past couple of years really transformed and changed through media and just opportunity. So. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, and part of the, you know, the objective of this podcast is to really talk about, 
you know, the, the architecture industry and where we've gotten it wrong. How can we improve it? You know, what are the younger voices in our profession doing? Um, because it, it, you know, it really, for a very long time, it's been an old, an old white guy, you know, uh, working behind a desk as the master. And I, I understand all of that, but there's a whole younger generation that has a lot to say. And I think we could take back a lot of our profession um, with sort of this next generation coming up. And obviously you're a, you're an integral part of that with, with all the things that, that you do. And wh where do you draw, you know, your inspiration from in, in the design work that you do? Um, I always look at the human qualities of space of like what the user needs. I was really lucky at HOK to be exposed to the client end really early on in my career, like just as I started. And so I started to understand that a lot of the things they taught us in university of like that design brief is really just what your client wants <laughs> in the end, because they have the pocket of a bucket of money that you have to kind of get your fee from and you have to pay others from. So you have to just decide what you're, what you're able to kind of get away with and what you can't and, and what you're, you'll sleep at night if aesthetically it doesn't exist. So I think that realization hitting me really early on in my career allowed me to kind of manage that aspect really well, which is why I got thrown into project management so early because I, I, I was able to kind of really calm the client and understand what they needed and what their needs were and what their wants were. And when you decipher those two, yeah. you're able to push through things a lot when the value engineering comes along because you're like, <laughs> I know they really like this one design element. So I think just like that, that quality has been really great, but I mean, it's different because HOK didn't really have a distinct aesthetic, right? Like they're, they're more so like how do we get the project done within budget and make sure that it is to our like technical standards is incredibly important sure. and project standards, obviously. Um, but working with someone like David um, is very different because like he comes with an expected aesthetic. And so you want to kind of understand, you know, how can we propose that to the client and they understand his vision. Um, and so those two things have always been conflicting, but me personally, like I always look at the basics of what a site analysis proposes, like where should the wind be coming from, the sun be coming from, how can we get natural light and maximize like just the natural elements of the site. Um, that to me, and then materiality has always been something that I'm really exploring. Like, I think it's so exciting, this new era of mass timber we're in and exploring new materials and, and just letting material speak to you and let that dictate what the aesthetic is of a building and then also the locality of it. I think doing work throughout Canada and trying to define what Canadian architecture should look like and stop trying to mimic like what we see in Europe and the States and, you know, trying to direct, figure out what our identity is as a country. So those are kind of things that are driving me right now. Yeah. So, so you mentioned David Adage. Um, and so how long did you work there? Uh, just only a year and a half. It wasn't very long, okay. <laughs> but it was an incredible experience because I mean, the opportunity presented itself during COVID. Um, I've always wanted to work on the continent. I thought it was incredibly important as someone from the diaspora to be able to contribute to the fabric of, of what was, is growing there because Africa to me is the future um, because it's going to be uh, by 2050, one of the youngest uh, continents. Uh, there's such a 80% of the, the population will be under 23 right now. It was going to be basically really? the future thinkers of <laughs> tomorrow. Um, and so it's going to be an incredible space to be in as it develops with these new ideas in this new generation. 
Um, and so I really wanted to get in front of that and explore that landscape. And David had moved back to Accra um, full time during COVID. And so the opportunity presented that I would be managing projects and working directly with him under mentorship um, in that office. And he was there every day, which is something that never happened because he always was going through three different offices, London, New York and Accra. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that those project works it's very different working in that typology because obviously it hasn't been done before. A lot of the projects that we were pursuing museums and um, different types of private homes and healthcare projects, like these are all the first times uh, of them even proposing them to the client and the client being able to kind of propose these kind of ideas to the government and stuff. So it's just, it's a very different space. Um, so it was really exciting and, and incredible. It's just, uh, it, it just kind of, for me, I had a lot of things on the go here in Canada and, and I, I, I wasn't able to do both and balance it living in, in Accra. So okay. coming home was part of that process. So yeah. we, we worked with David on a project that ultimately never got built out in Montauk, Long Island. It was a surf club, really unique. And David did the design work, me and my firm at Mancini, we were going to be the uh, architect of record. It went yeah. pretty far. Um then the the local town um, and uh, the neighbors all ultimately kind of protested it and, you know, slept out on the beach and all that sort of stuff. And it, it got stopped along the way, which was too bad. And f- their own fault, they ended up with like ginormous houses right in front of their uh, right in front of their views. So they would have uh, they would have been better off with David's surf club because it was super low profile and elegant and, and really amazing. But it was an awesome experience to kind of see that the way he thought. And also, um, I was fascinated by, you know, I don't know if this is his business model or not, but essentially what it seemed like to me is that he almost staffed up for a project and everyone that worked there, they worked for a particular project, knowing that when that project was done, they would probably not work there anymore. They'd go find some other work, Um, which I thought was actually kind of an interesting business model as opposed to, you know, you know, I'm sure like at HOK, just like at Mancini, we're all about the culture and we want everyone to stay there and be loved. Is that, am I correct in that? That's the way that, that he, that his office works? Not necessarily. I think it's a, it's a, it's a business model that is less, I guess, less people focused and more project focused. Definitely. I think that that is definitely an astute assumption in that, but I think that people kind of come and go, it is a rotating door simply because it, it is more about David as the singular vision and ethos, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's incredible what he's achieved and the projects that come out. Like you said, the translation of his design thinking when it, it's a completely otherworldly in terms of how people approach a site like it's just he looks at it and he knows exactly how to pursue it in a way that it'll have a long-term effect that people won't understand now but five ten years like that was totally the right move (laughs) and you may not get it you might not appreciate it right now but you'll love it like 10 years from now and that kind of future thinking and, and thought leadership is really hard to find in any design firm that i've kind of worked through because i worked with the good thing about hok is that there's design principles right which are all different davids and they all have different approaches so i've i've worked with about four or five different ones throughout hok that have worked with the company for like 20 plus years and all their approaches are very different, but none so much that get helmed by the HOK brand, which was really hard, I think, for a lot of people that are more creative. So 
I think seeing David and having the free lease of him being like, this is my company and I can kind of define what that is kind yeah. of gave me a lot of clarity and like what type of work that I wanted to do even now with WXY or just as like as, as myself as, as an architect and also the amount of research he does. I think that that's something that people don't really understand of why he set apart. There's a huge a portion of, uh, of research that goes into every project to understand like hundreds of years before what that site was and what it, the, the kind of the, the, the vision and of strategy of how it's going to grow. It's incredibly important for him and any site that we worked on to understand that. And I think that really gives you a different thinking of, of when you're approaching the site and light and sound, all these different things of how you want to acoustics and, and build the form. He really takes that time to, to, to understand that. So I think that that's what sets him apart too. Um, he's not so stuck in the weeds of like trying to define what does a David Ajay building look like? It's more so like, what is the best thing for the client and the site and how can I still maintain an aesthetic that's interesting? Yeah. yeah there's a few, let's, you know, star, star architects, right. That have a very, very distinct, you know, like the Gary's have, have something that they do, but then there's some that, you know, you wouldn't know it's necessarily from their hand or their mind. Right. Like, and I think of, I think of, of David that way. I think of like a Jean Nouvel that way. There's all of these, you know, there, every project is about the project and the uniqueness of it and less about their style. Somewhere in there, there is a thread that's common to all of them, but you really yeah. have to look for it and, and understand it. Um, to, yeah. to really identify it as opposed to, hey, that's a Michael Graves building, right? Or whatever, um, yeah. which you can tell from a mile away, right? Um, yeah, cool. so, or Zaha, yeah. Or Zaha, yeah. Yeah, but her her work was just so extraordinarily beautiful that, you know, it, it didn't matter. You know, it's just, it was just, it was just amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, what, just one last thing on, on David, what projects did you work on there? Um, I've worked on a variety of projects. I can only speak, obviously, of the ones that are public. So um, I've worked on the, the hospital agenda 11. That was one of my major projects, 111 different uh, healthcare, the model that we created to be throughout Ghana. So it'll be in different eight different regions and about eight, I think about 10 each of those. And then there's a few sporadically throughout the greater Accra. Um, that was like a healthcare project that they didn't see coming, but it was an incredible opportunity. And I come from a healthcare background from HOK. Um, I worked on a different variety of reactivation care centers, which are like renewed hospitals. Um, and then also a few healthcare projects throughout when I first started. So to be able to apply that knowledge with an aesthetic vision of David was incredible. So that was an ex excellent experience. Um, and then museums, I worked on AMOA, uh, the museum in Benin that's coming. Uh, that one is developing more into a master plan now. So it'll be really interesting of how that comes together. So it won't be just that one major building. There'll be a lot of different pockets of little neighborhoods and portions throughout that. Um, and then I worked on... Uh, I guess the key side is open now. We, we won that. So Waterfront in Toronto, that, that project is going to be close to home. So that's exciting. And uh, that was a competition. So winning that's an incredibly important for him to break into the market. So I think that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Are there any sort of key takeaways from working in Africa versus working in some of the other, you know, in, from in Canada or, or in the United yeah. States? <laughs> Not very different. I'm just no. kidding. <laughs> I mean, I think in a sense, 
the clients are very different. I mean, I had, I worked with a lot of corporate clients at HOK. Um, so they're a little bit different in terms of timeline and budgets. I think it, ultimately you, you start to realize everything comes down to money and time in, yeah. in, in any, in, in any kind of environment you're in. I think if you have more money, you have more time or less time. Well, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the corporate clients are not letting you uh, research the, uh, the site for, for six months. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's very and that's the thing. I think it, in that sort of education, it was very similar. Our projects were a lot larger and our clients were very prominent and, you know, working with different government agencies and, and that kind of thing is very different in terms of their stipulations and what they want and, you know, their demands are all the same. It's, it's, it's very similar, but I think stricter timelines here in Canada and US because construction is so expensive. So because of that, you don't really get willy-nilly about schedule. Um, so that was the only thing for me because I'm very like astute about like SD is this long and DD is this long and we got to move on. <laughs> like, no, we want to change some things. And yeah, the structure is very different. So, but again, the client gets what he wants. So yeah, very similar. <laughs> so, yeah. so I've had um, Samantha Josephat and uh, Danny Cesario on the podcast, um, which I, I think you you know them. You you know you guys are all in the um, yeah. um, Madam Architect, um, and that's kind of how I learned about them. And through uh, uh, Bola Williams, who is my our CFO at at uh, Mancini Duffy, and um, you know we we spoke about how in America only two percent of the profession is African American. Um, so you know, talk about sort of, um, you know, your work in that. So, you, you know, the, the community affairs uh, of Atlanta is a Noma chapter, um, you know, and then, you know, what does it mean to be a woman of color in the industry? And just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, like I said, didn't get to meet women very early on in my career. It was mostly men, but I think meeting the first black female architect was at Noma conference or um, it was actually at Harvard graduate school of design. Um, they had a, an event, I think in 20, 2010 and I was in grad school at the time. And um, I came down from Toronto and I met a few Noma members there for the first time. And that was like the first black female architects I met. And I was like, okay, this is real. This is a thing. This is the people like me. Um, and so eventually I joined Noma when I moved to Atlanta in 2015. So I stayed in touch with a lot of like a few members from there. And I went to the conference a few years prior. So I kind of had a little group of people that had been staying in touch with me. And I think that that kind of sense of community that Noma created really gave me a platform to find my confidence of like what I was trying to achieve as an architect. I, I mean, I was at HUK at the time and HUK was doing a lot of mentorship for me. Like they were providing with a lot of opportunities and, and training. And so for that to have an outlet um, to, to access to younger generation was really important. So the community affairs role was really focused on camps for middle school level. Um, so I, I ran a camp uh, with a middle school that was like during STEM week and it was a STEAM week. And we kind of go through the, the makings of a city and just kind of having that expressed knowledge of how you came to be and giving that to younger generation was really um, compelling for me and like what I wanted to do. And I think, like I said, I took that knowledge home because I felt like, you know, we didn't have anything like that in Canada. And there's, there's lots of women that are in architecture and undergrad and graduate that are kind of faltering similar to me of where they just needed that, that person that could tell them, you know, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and, and so I think that um, the, the low percentage rate for me has been something of a, 
uh, a confidence booster to keep going and, and also like motivation to invite the next generation to feel empowered to, to kind of see us. And that's why I think it's important to do these kind of interventions and discussions with people like you, because then they see more faces and it becomes more normalized. And then it's not really a discussion anymore because we see it so often. It just yeah. is what it is. Yeah, at that point. Absolutely. And and so you touched on middle school, which I find interesting because we talked about this in our office because we do some outreach to high schools and there are a lot in New York city, especially there's technical high schools that have an architecture track and you see all sorts of different types of people in those tracks. And then we talked about the idea that, well, when you're in grammar school, right. And you're young, you're a very free thinker. Right. And, and the idea of becoming an architect is, you know, that just as arbitrary and as great as any uh, as a fireman, right? And or or whatever you're you're going to do, and you're free in terms of sketching and drawing, and you you have no no inhibitions. But it's that yeah. middle school part where it, you're kind of it's a make or break, right? And a lot of people aren't encouraged in middle school to go into the more technical kind of things like architecture and and engineering, and that's where it falls off. So it's interesting that you brought that up. Because we've talked about that a lot, and how how do you get outreach to middle schools, right? And and it's a it's a really difficult question. But is do you have ideas specifically on that? Oh yeah, it's our whole model for beta. Okay, <laughs> beta is completely focused on the pipeline. Um, that's the only way we realized we could grow. Because obviously, in 2020, when everyone realized, you know, we're in a racial uh, pandemic, everything that happened with George Floyd, like, what are we actually doing to support people of color in different fields where they're not seen? And I think ultimately, we looked internally because people were coming at us like, we want to hire, you know. Black senior designers, you want people at associate level and just want to throw job opportunities to different people. And then realizing, you know, we're all are, like, we all have jobs of our own. We're thriving <laughs> in our space. We don't need new jobs. It was more so like, why is there not a whole generation of people about to kind of take us on and like move us out into the next phase so that they can enter this role? And where are they? And like, why are not high, more high school people pursuing architecture because they're not introduced to it at like a, a, a a key yeah. level of, I think it was 11 to 13 is when guidance counselors start to speak to you about your career opportunities. And we only found that out because we did like a, a survey with our members and we were trying to find out the key moment where they decided that architecture was what they wanted to do and how did they know what courses. And so then we spoke to the Toronto District School Board and we asked them, you know, like, what's that moment? And then they kind of explained the process. And so we're like, okay, we need to shift our thinking of high school because it's too late yeah. <laughs> to go right when that happens. And so we started looking at camps um, that that kind of brought in those students um, at that age range. And so we did one kind of virtual one that was more kind of an idea thinking and just kind of this is what architecture is, similar to the project pipeline that we did. I did at NOMA. Uh, and now since it's turned into these like smaller programs where it's three or four and that 11 to 13 year old age range that come to a firm, the firm hosts them and, and they kind of go through what kind of projects they do. And they have a few architects and staff kind of walk through what a project looks like. They do some modeling and do some 3D modeling and just give them an idea of what the skills are like. And then it's just let them go and hope that you know, you've created that mark. And I mean, it's not very structured, but 
the problem with that age range is that you're still exploring yourself, right? So you don't want to put them into a framework, but at least now they, they know an option of something that, that could be feasible for them. And there's like a clear pathway. And then they have people they could ask questions to as well. When they get to that level, they're like, oh, I'm thinking this, or, you know, I met this person at this firm. Maybe they can answer questions. You're opening up their network, which allows them to kind of think through ideas. And maybe it's not architecture, maybe it's engineering, who knows, but then we can type that, tap them in that. And that's really been the most important portion of beta is just expanding networks and like giving high school elementary students access to associates and principals at an architecture firm is like a wild thing to me. I never would have imagined. I don't think I had ever access to someone that high level in any firm at that age. So I think it's really interesting. Um, how, do you, how do you grow that beyond just where you are in, in Canada? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I think we just have to normalize that thinking that in firms, we have to do outreach. Like I think a firm like HOK or Gensler or Perkinson will can per- perfectly kind of create that model. I mean, we've haphazardly done it simply because it was what was available to us during COVID, um, that virtual connection. But I think it should be a proactive thing. And I actually think through HOK Impact, because I was a huge, I, I volunteered a lot for that when I was at HOK, um, that uh, that kind of ACE mentorship too is something really important that they do at HOK and they have a few chapters. Yep, that, that we, we do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that key is key in like getting a lot of staff involved in that. I think there needs to be more incentive. And I think we did get a few hours of where we could kind of donate that to volunteering time to outreach. So I think that if that's an incentive throughout and it's normalized in a firm culture, that that's really how you start because as much as we want to think that today is just the firm and this is our values is what we're their vision. Succession planning is such a huge part of the success of a firm and a firm like Gensler, like it wouldn't be what it was if they had just relied on Arv and kind of his vision. You have to really think about if you're going to grow and what that looks like, who do you want to be at the helm of that? And I think the firms that have done a really good job of that, especially like at Perkins and Will, really understood that you have to have defined leaders throughout the, the firm to kind of guide you to the future. And what does that look like? And is it a younger generation? And I'm seeing now like a lot of younger directors and that like, which I never would have imagined, like if you had told me like 10 years ago. <laughs> so I think that during COVID, they've kind of understood that that kind of forward thinking younger generation really needs to be at the helm of management because you can have a different way of thinking and different access and more relatability to someone that's younger at that level. Um, So I think shifting that and engaging more high school level students and and also providing better support to university students, because I think what we noticed too, is that even when they get into university and graduate, they don't have adequate support. They don't really get jobs during the summer sometimes in undergraduate too. It's like, you're too young to be working in a firm, but it's like, if you don't know what a firm is like (laughs) at undergrad, and then you get to graduate level, it's a huge slap in the face when you're doing an internship for the first time of like, you don't really know how to keep a project financially viable and all these things how much your hours are being charged and you're just kind of floating. I think if people knew a lot more structure of how a firm worked earlier, it would really serve us better. You you have that project manager way of talking. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hours and yeah, yeah, accountability through it. I love it. But no, absolutely. I mean, I I think that maybe it's through ACE that we kind of uh, do this. So we'll we'll have to talk offline about how to partner up on some of these things because it's right up, you know, a lot of our firm's goals for sure. So so kind of switching gears a bit, um, 
<clears throat> so I don't know if you've heard of new urbanism, sort of the the, the planning of, of new urbanism. So it was probably, it's still pretty popular, um, but I learned it when I went to school uh, at the University of Miami. It was... Um, um, uh, Andreas Duwani and Elizabeth Platter Zyberg were the deans, and they really kind of promoted new urbanism. I remember at the time thinking, so just for the audience, I mean, new urbanism is basically like a town planning where, you know, you're essentially pushing the car to behind or not even in the city or the town. You're really bringing all the residents super close together. Um, you're really creating a community. Um, my issue with it, you know, kind of learning as an architect was it, it, the, the actual style of it always seemed kind of like pretty lame and boring um, and very cookie cutter. Um, but I was reading an interview with you um, where you say you want your architecture um, to strive for inclusive built environments and contribute to sustainability, equality, and less segregated societies. Uh, the building of space is building of community. And I thought, for whatever reason, that kind of reminded me of new urbanism because there is that sense in there. Um, so, in your mind, you know what what you say there. How does that translate into like the physical built world? How do you get, you know, sustainable equality and less segregated societies in a in a like physically built? So. <laughs> A sidebar is I did do a studio in, in new urbanism in my, in my um, undergrad, where we traveled from Ottawa throughout the different new urbanist communities of the United States, all the way to like West Palm Beach, Florida. Did you go and to we, a celebration where they filmed um, the Truman show? <laughs> yeah. The celebrations. We went to the Disney kind of uh -huh. little, little, yeah, we went to all of them. And so it did for me, in me really early on of like what a perfect community is and, and what that looks like. I think now in 2022, it's clear that affordability is like a huge issue. Um, you can build incredibly beautiful neighborhoods, but if no one can afford to live there, what does that mean? And then also who do you want to live there? If, you, if diversity and equity and inclusion are incredibly important to us as a city, then how do you provide access to different socioeconomic backgrounds that diversity is present? Because there's obviously distinct issues, not just in the U.S., but in Canada, of different races and income and generational wealth and all those kind of external factors. So I think now with the new affordability, I guess, laws that have come into place in terms of residential housing in Canada, a certain percentage, I think it's 30 30% now needs to be a certain under a certain amount of um, economic range for people of a different income. I think under 60,000 Canadian can ex have access to. So that's kind of the starting of the conversation. But I think walkable cities are something too that people need to understand is like the future, the reliance on the car because the cars are incredibly expensive with now gas prices rising. We know that this is something too that we can't rely on. So what does that mean and providing appropriate public transit um, so it just really comes down to like those two things, like trying to find ways of thinking in terms of renewable strategies and a sustainable city. What does that mean? Um, how do we kind of provide access to food economy too that's readily available? Because food is incredibly expensive because of inflation. Sure. So it's like you have to think of like just the basic human food shelter needs and, um, and then trying to apply that to a city. What does that look like? I mean, in a city like Toronto, it's a little bit difficult because... Toronto is not affordable anywhere. I don't know how it would become that, but there's definitely pockets of greater Toronto that are becoming a little bit more interesting, like a city like Hamilton, which 
generationally has always been looked at as like a poor kind of community. But since now, especially with COVID, people moving out there and kind of changing what the thinking is about the city and the approach to it and arts and culture obviously is now thriving in it because they can afford the space that's there and they can't afford Toronto space. So it's just like interesting how everything really just comes down to, to money and that application and how the city can be formed. So I think it's really up to city planners. And like, I think that's why I really am enjoying this new role at WXY because it's so much more about urban planning and that application. And there's a domino effect in that because when you talk at the higher level principles of like all those things that I've outlined, how does that apply to like your built form? And if you want to propose a building, like how are you uh, kind of fitting into that new framework of affordability? And are you proposing that to the client? Are you saying that this sort of sustainability project is going to kind of offer jobs or something for like a food co-op that's nearby like you have to be a lot more community minded and that's really what I was speaking to like you have to understand the community you're setting the building in and even if it is something that is in a higher um, social economic background can you explore options where you can encourage people from other backgrounds to come is it a farmer's market is it something that can engage people of different walks of life so yeah I think there's some good examples of it um, in Toronto, like Regent Park. Regent Park was traditionally like a really, again, like more project housing and um, Diamond Schmidt and a few other firms have come in and, and over 10 years now have developed it into something larger that, that you know, people still visit because it has great you know, stores and restaurants and you kind of want to walk it because it's easy to kind of get there and transit and they have the community centers that are like hosting things for kids and you have different you know, film festivals that are being hosted there. So you have to find ways of incentivizing people to stretch out of their comfort zone and, and engage in people in different backgrounds. So it's not any one answer, <laughs> but it's like a different tools of ways of shifting your thinking when you approach a, a client or you are approached by a client and how can you propose those things so you're not a part of the problem, really. Yeah, no, that's, am that's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. As far as your, you, you mentioned uh, WXY. So what, what is your current role there? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because Claire and I met through a New York Times article seven years ago. That's cool. It was about women in architecture that was written right after Zaha had passed away. And they were just really trying to understand the challenges that women in architecture were facing. So a mentor of mine at Georgia Tech had introduced us because she was doing a visiting studio critic there at, while I was in Atlanta. And so they were like, you're both in an article together. Have you met? And then, <laughs> no. And so she invited me to the studio um, that she was running uh, to be a critic. Um, and so I was there through the fall and winter studio and I was kind of following her. And so she exposed me to kind of what she was hoping to do. And she's Canadian. She's from Edmonton. So that was another really weird synergy. <laughs> Um, and so she went to University of Toronto and she knows a lot of people here in Toronto. So when I was kind of thinking about coming home, I was talking to her a lot about what I wanted to achieve with my, my nonprofit. And she also had a nonprofit when she was my age. So she was like, you know, it's really important to be in the community that you're trying to kind of serve. And if you're going to be in Toronto, you need to make sure that you kind of have connections to community organizations like Artscape and Bentway that are kind of really reformatting how people think about public space. And I already had like a really good connection to that through my nonprofit because we were already collaborating on events and things. So I was like, this is really great synergy and this makes sense. And so I was talking to her a lot about work, not just in Canada, but work in, in, in Ghana, because although I left, I still uh, stay in touch with a lot of uh, consultants and friends and, and community uh, kind of cultural <laughs> instigators that were thinking, you know, I still want to do smaller projects with you. And so because of that, there was an affordable housing developer too in Ghana that I was still working with. So that's where the global practice comes in because okay. there's still going to be a 
that's happening on the continent um, and also some artists that I've been working with that are hoping to do more temporal public installation work that kind of sit for, I don't know, nine months, one year, you know, some quick, quick burn projects that I really thought would be interesting to kind of expose to the practice too, because I feel like we talk so much about doing um, like landscape and planning and urban design, but we don't really talk about you know the artists that we engage with that. We kind of just let them coast in on the spaces that we design. I thought, what if we engage them first and kind of stretched out that relationship and brought them into different projects that we do? So that's also something that I'm exploring now. We have a project that will be coming up in the UK and a few kind of different avenues that we're thinking in the US. There's one in New York and LA. So those would be the kind of things that I'm working on that are more temporal, but still some architecture. So we are looking at affordable housing because I think that that's really the future. We have to really make sure that we're at the forefront of that and Claire's done so much work with New York public housing um, and, and throughout Brooklyn as well. So I think that that would be really interesting application in Toronto as Toronto's trying sure. to just discover who they are in that market. And then the healthcare hat also um, it's transformed now to more wellness. I think COVID shifted thinking in that healthcare is just something that's very separate but the personal well-being wellness is hand in hand with that. And the wellness centers keep popping up because they really think that communities now need their own because everybody's kind of in their bubble and trying to find those spaces that they can create mental health and, and recreate kind of spaces of, of rejuvenation sure. um, in this time. So I think that there, there's a few um, healthcare providers that are shifting into that. So that's me another landscape that we're trying to explore in Toronto and in New York. So, so yeah. <laughs> how how <laughs> is that? <laughs> are you guys, um, are you working out of an office? Um, no, I'm working from home. Okay. <laughs> no, so right now, there's two of us in Toronto. And we're hoping to grow. I mean, we're hiring and we're hoping to grow to about four or five people just at the beginning. Oh, good for you. Those, yeah. Okay. So we'll eventually have a small office here. Um, it'll likely be like a partnership with a firm or consultant that we work with at first and then slowly to have some sort of space where we can kind of engage clients and, and yeah. Is yeah, WXY in their, in their other offices? Are they actually in? Oh, so yeah, they've moved into a new space at 25 Park Place. Um, it's supposed to be ready <laughs> in the next week or so, okay. but you know how those things go. Um, but the launch is meant to be sometime in the next two weeks. So nice. I saw okay. pictures today of seats and, and at a table. So it's coming together. Cool. The kitchen is finished and those kind of things. But it, it's an incredible space. It's going to seat about 50 people. Um, and it's really central. It's like right down in, 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 in lower Manhattan yeah. near Wall Street. Yeah. That's, yeah, great. that's great. Yeah, I'm always I'm trying to get a sense of kind of what architecture firms are actually going back to the office. I'm a big proponent yeah. of architecture firms need to be in the office, you know, maybe not five days a week, but you got to be there at some point because we, yeah, we have I, to lead I, by example. <laughs> exactly. No, I really, I really got lucky because I was in the office throughout COVID. I mean, we were in the office every day at Ajay, so yeah. I haven't really had that much of a lull without <laughs> being with people. So I'm really looking forward to having a space. Yeah. Um, so uh, just a couple more, just real quick, you know, tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up. Sure. It's a little <laughs> bit all over the place. <laughs> I to preface that. But essentially, my dad was Canadian because he went to school in Canada. Um, so I was born Canadian, but I was born in Doha, Qatar. Um, so we lived there for about a year and then we moved to Saudi Arabia so I lived there for about six years. Um, so most of my background, I'm Muslim, and most of my background was like starting life was in, in the Middle East. Um, and so we came to Canada in like 1995, something like that. 
and um, lived in New Brunswick for a few, few years and then Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is really close to Duluth, Minnesota. So I did my high school there. Um, and so my parents ended up staying there. Um, they've been there now for 22 years. Um, and so from there, I kind of did my rounds of Ottawa for my undergrad, Toronto for my master's and yep. okay. And then Calgary, Atlanta, Toronto, New York, that kind of thing. So I've kind of moved around in Accra and then back to Toronto, but Toronto has been like a home base, like uh, back and forth over this since 2009. So okay. I've been here time yeah that's yeah. that's an amazing uh for someone young that 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 amount of moves and very very worldly i'm jealous yeah. <laughs> um yeah. so just kind of wrapping up is there anything um that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about um i think just the uh the work with the with the continent like i think it's something that i i'd like to continue with with beta even like i i'm something i it's not fully out there, but I'm going to be teaching at University of Toronto, a studio that basically brings back a, uh, Ghanaian students from Accra uh, to Toronto and then 15 students from Toronto to Ghana. Um, so it'll be an exchange uh, program uh, with University of Toronto, uh, Daniels. Is Good there, for you. There, yeah. And it's basically just to expose um, Canadian people um, to the African culture and, and to the African landscape so they kind of have that, that new experience. And, and then also to give some Canadian experience to the Ghanaian students so that they have better access to opportunities should they be looking for master's programs or undergrad programs later on. Because I think that that's a huge setback for a lot of people that are foreign trained to kind of pursue architecture. And I think the, you know, those obstacles are something that we need to try to, as architects, at least try to temper those things and try to find new pathways for people to find a profession. So, yeah. Good for you. Congratulations. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that, that that's really, I think we covered a lot. I think it's, it's just important to kind of figure out how to, 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 I guess, link arms with allies. And if there's ways to kind of shift that thinking about the pipeline is really interesting. And I, I think the younger generation engaging them into architecture is definitely going to serve us all really well. And I think that shift to technology is really interesting and software. That's something that's I'm really excited about right now, just trying to figure out how to shift coding and all these dynamo and parametric building sure. into readily available at a younger generation so they can explore new typologies like that. So yeah, so the, yeah. the gamification yeah. of architecture really can also bring, yeah. you know, that younger generation into, into the profession. So what you and I'll have to connect uh, separately after this and see how we can partner yeah. up on a few things. Yeah, that'd be incredible. I would love to hear about it. Well, thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast Um, and for honestly being such a such an essential voice in the the profession. And and I'm excited to see kind of how you continue on because you have, you know, you're young and got many years to go. So it's going to be it's going to be awesome to see your career continue. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This yeah, is really great. Absolutely. And so where can our listeners kind of see and read more about you and and your organizations? Uh, sure. So for me, um, all my personal platforms are at Farida Abubakari. Um, and then all of the beta is at, at beta.to. And uh, our website is beta.ca. Okay, yeah. cool. We'll, we'll link all that up in our show notes and stuff like that. So, Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, great meeting you. Thank you for being here. <laughs>